Well, Gateway family, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John this morning, and we are in our 10th sermon so far in the Gospel of John, and we're finishing up John chapter 3 after 10 messages. So if you want to be turning to John chapter 3 or scrolling in your Bible app to it, the text we're coming to this morning is, in a sense, a review text in some ways. We've talked about before that the Apostle John, when he wrote this book, was very intentional in what he did. He tells us in an introduction what he's going to do, then he lays out the body of the message, and then he says, see, I told you. And if you remember, the message of the book was John 20, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And so he tells us what he's going to do. Well, as he's gotten three chapters in the book, you know, chapters were added later, but at this point in his writing, he's, he pauses for about five or six verses and gives us a summary of everything that he's been saying so far, the key message of what he's been saying so far. And so we come to what is easy to gloss over as, oh, I've already heard this in the last few chapters. But friends, what we're coming to this morning is a text that is rich in the gospel, a text that is rich in how it changes our lives. It calls for a lot of questions for us. But since it's a review text, by way of review, let's just talk about what we've seen so far. Our very first sermon in the Gospel of John, we looked at why the book of John was written. You see it up there on the screen. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We gave some background to the book. We began with chapter 1, verse 1, as we've walked our way verse by verse through this. And in the beginning of chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is the eternal word, the eternal light, who came to show us God's glory, who came to give us life, who came to make us children of God and to give us grace upon grace. And you remember the imagery of the waves of grace crashing over us. We also saw in chapter 1, John the Baptist came to introduce Christ and he came to exalt Christ and he became an example for us of how his attitudes, his actions, his words were all about pointing others to Jesus. As we finished up chapter 1 in our third week, we looked at how those who follow Jesus invite others to do the same. We looked at Jesus calling his disciples and how they quickly called others to follow as well. We've gotten to chapter 2 in our fourth message. Drew preached for us that Sunday morning. And he helped us see that Jesus did his first miracle, changing water to wine. And that morning we saw that the miracles of Jesus help us realize that Jesus really is God. And they reveal his glory and they help us believe. We begin to see this unfolding, this idea of belief that will be a theme throughout our whole study of the Gospel of John. From there we saw Jesus cleansing the temple. We see him with a messianic authority and we saw some contrast that morning. But one of the main contrasts was the contrast of belief and a lack of belief that morning. Then we got into chapter 3 and we saw that unlike curiosity, a true belief in Jesus involves receiving a radical transformation from above. It's not just praying a prayer, but receiving Jesus is being born again, having a rebirth that comes from above. Then we got two weeks ago into John 3.16, one of people's favorite texts and most familiar texts. And we saw there that we really can believe Jesus when he tells us why he came and why we must believe. And we talked about eternal life and why we must believe in him. And then last week we looked at John the Baptist one last time before John the Baptist kind of fades out of this book. And there we saw the, his example that there should never be jealousy because God is sovereign and everything is about Jesus. And so as you think about all these things, we've seen a lot in these 10 weeks so far as we've gone through this. As I was thinking about the big pictures, we come to some review verses this morning. So I think, what is the main theme that we're seeing? And I think we've seen kind of three things as we've gone throughout all of this study so far over these 10 weeks. First of all, we've seen throughout all of this who Jesus is. I think every one of our sermons, we keep seeing something about the nature of who Jesus is. Second of all, we keep seeing what Jesus came to do, why he came. And the third, we see how we're to respond. You've heard me say probably week after week, I kind of sound like a broken record, that the Gospel of John calls for a response. It's not just intellectual truth, but it's calling for a decision. It's calling us to do something with what we are hearing. So what have we seen on these things? Who Jesus is, we've seen him to be the eternal word, the eternal light. 
God himself who can work miracles, the Messiah who has authority, someone who's trustworthy because he comes from above. What did Jesus come to do? We've seen in these 10 weeks, he came to show us God's glory. He came to call people to himself. He came to give to people a radical rebirth, a radical transformation of being born again. And he came to give us grace upon grace upon grace. But like I've said many times, we're called to respond. What have we seen in the call to response throughout the Gospel of John so far? We're called to believe. Isn't that over and over? We're called to believe. We're called to receive this radical transformation. We're called to follow him. We're called to make much of him. We're called to invite others to follow him. We're called with our lives to glorify him. And this text this morning is going to summarize that for us. Normally in our message, I give you one point of the message I want you to take away from it. But I'm going to do it different this morning. I don't have a one main point for you this morning. I have a one main question for you this morning. Because I believe the text this morning bears a question that you have to answer and I have to answer. And this is the question for us this morning as we look at John and John 3. What does your life reveal about who you really believe Jesus is? What does your life reveal? Not what your words say, not your Sunday attendance not what you've done, you know, in church activity. But what is your life, Monday through Saturday night, what does your life look like when you're with people, when you're in private? What does your life reveal about who you really believe Jesus is? Because we're seeing our text at the end of John 3 this morning that how, how we answer this question is going to show whether we believe God to be the truth, whether we believe God to be a liar. Because there's no middle ground. We're going to quickly see in this text today that there is no neutrality here. There's no middle ground on this one, there is no standing in the middle of the road, or to use our good southern idiom, there's no straddling the fence with Jesus here. Either our lives show that we really believe in him, and it's changed us, and we show that God is the truth, or our lives show that we do not believe him, we disobey him, and we show God to be a liar. Don't miss that. We'll see it in the text, but we either believe and are changed, and thus show God to be true, or we do not believe, we reject him, and we continue to disobey, and we show God to be a liar. Either we have genuine faith or we have a heart of disobedience. And so as we get to John chapter 3, I want you to be thinking again, what does my life reveal about who I really believe that Jesus is? And the question is not, did you pray a prayer, did you walk an aisle, but what does your life reveal? Because your life reveals what's really in your heart. So as we come to John chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 31, going through verse 36 this morning. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Would you pray with me? Father, I am thankful for your word. Father, what a treasure we have that we can hold in our hands your words to us. And I pray today we would treasure that, God, that we would look intently into your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this text to us, that you would give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe and receive from you what you'd have for each single one of us. And Lord, we'll trust you to do that work, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So so what do we see in this review text that John has done? Again, John has... 
his pause. He's going to reflect back on everything with the encounter with Nicodemus, everything that's been happening. Give us a summary here in these six verses of what he's seen. And he's going to show us what we've seen all throughout, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we're to respond. So let's think along those three themes as you think about that big overarching question of what your life reveals about what you believe. First of all, what do we believe about who Jesus is? Look at verse 31 here for us. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So what do we learn about Jesus here? He's from above. He came from heaven, i.e., he is God, is what this is saying to us. And John is going to show us this through a contrast. Notice kind of the parallel structure. He who comes from above is above all, but he who is of the earth belongs to the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Notice the repetition there. But there's a contrast in this. He who is of the earth. When we think of earth and as we think of like negative things, of sinful things, that's not carried, conveyed in this, the, Greek, or the Greek word here for the word earth. The Greek word for earth is the word that conveys the idea of limitedness, finiteness. That he who is limited, he who is finite, is of the earth and can only speak of finite or limited things. That's not what Jesus is. Jesus is not of the earth. He's not finite. He's not limited like you and I are as a finite, limited race. Jesus is above all. He is from heaven. He has no limitations. He's infinitely different than us. That's why it's good what we saw last week when John the Baptist says, He must increase and I must decrease. That's a good thing. We're limited. He is unlimited. But not only is he from above, he is also, it says here, he is above all. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. And it repeats that at the very end of that verse. Well, he who comes from heaven is above all. What does that mean? He's above all things. He's above all people. He is preeminent. He is the most excellent thing in all of the, anything that exists there. He is the ruler over all things. It's the idea of imagery of ruling here, of full authority. But there's even more about who Jesus is in this text. Look at verses 34 and 35. Jump down there. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. We see two things the Father has given to Jesus here. Number one, he's given the Spirit without any limitation. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Some translators measure, some say limit. The idea, I think, is, can be either way, but I think limit perhaps is better here. Up until this point in redemptive history, God the Father sent the Spirit on different people to anoint their ministries for what they were called to do. But they had the Spirit in part. In Jesus, there's no receiving the Spirit in part. He has the Spirit in full here. If you remember back to chapter 1 at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended, and we talked about the importance of this, the Spirit descended and remained on him. We don't pass over that little word. The Spirit of God remained. He had the fullness of the Spirit. Friends, there's, this is an indication of the perfect communion of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, three persons, one God, and that great mystery of the Trinity, but there's perfect communion. If you want to go deeper and understand the Trinity, April 30th, we have the chair of theology from Southern Seminary coming down, Bruce Ware, to help us understand how we understand the Trinity as best we can in our finiteness and our limitness here. And we see that Jesus has a spirit without limit. We see the Trinity here. But also we see the idea of his authority repeated. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Literally all things. That means your life and my life is in the hands of Jesus. He has authority over us. Your salvation and my salvation is in the hands of Jesus. World events are in the hands of Jesus. 
rulers of the world are in the hands of Jesus. He has all authority. Not some authority, not partial authority, but full authority over everything in the whole universe is under the authority of the Lord Jesus here. It brings back to your vacation Bible school childhood song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Yeah, that's very true and that's very biblical. And we see that right here. He has authority over literally everything. He has the whole world in his hands. All this is just pointing us back to that simple truth that Jesus is God. He's got the spirit in full. He's got all authority. He alone is God. But John's going to show us what he's seen so far, what we've seen all throughout this so far, that not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? Look at verse 32. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He came to bear witness, to testify. And don't miss this. This is present tense. If I was writing this, I'd be tempted to write this, that Jesus came to witness to us, like past tense. This was done. He spoke to us before, but this is present tense, ongoing. He is witnessing and is still witnessing to us. How? The pages of Scripture. His words are still just as much alive today. When we read Jesus' words here, it is just as powerful as if Jesus was standing face to face looking at us. He continues to bear witness, he continues to testify today. And what is he testifying at this time and now to us? Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Well, what has he seen and heard? Where is he from? He's from above. He's from heaven. He's testifying to, to the spiritual realities that we in our natural condition cannot understand. He is from above and he's teaching us the knowledge of God. If you want it in a simple way, he's coming to reveal God. He's come from heaven to reveal God. You see this repeated in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Friends, Jesus did not come just to give us human words or just some nice moral teaching of how we can be better people. Jesus came to reveal God to us. And that is an incredible truth. The Father sent him, it says in verse 34, for he whom God has sent. Friends, that means the Father stands behind what Jesus says. The Father guarantees that what Jesus is saying is the very words of God. So why did, so Jesus is God? Why did he come? He came to reveal God. Remember, the whole gospel, John doesn't want to stop there. It demands a response. We constantly see who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And this is where it hits us close to home here with how do we respond. Let's look at verse 32 again. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. What do you do with that? No one receives his testimony because just a minute, he's gonna, John's going to say that, that some believe and have eternal life. So how is it that no one receives his testimony? Well, to, you can interpret it one of two ways. I'll tell you both and then I'll tell you which way I believe and let you decide what you want to do. Some see this as just a generalization. At this point in redemptive history, very few have followed Jesus. And so at this point in history, there really is almost, when you look at the scope of the world, very few, almost no one has. We're going to talk on Wednesday night, not this week, but next week, as we do our How to Understand the Bible. We'll talk about the role of exaggeration and figurative language in the Bible. Some would hold this in that sense. I interpret it a little bit different way. No one receives his testimony. We've just seen in the previous verse, in verse 31, this contrast between he who is from above, Jesus, and us who is from the earth, who belongs to earth and speaks of earthly things. I believe this is a reminder to us that on our own, none of us will trust Christ. That on our own, none of us are going to long for Christ. If you think about what it says in the book of Romans chapter 3, we typically go to Romans 3 for some quick evangelism verses, but Romans chapter 3 verse 10, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Because that's not a very good picture of humanity or our condition apart from Christ. And I believe this verse here in 32 when it says that no one receives his testimony, it's a reminder to us that apart from God and his kindness giving to us a radical rebirth, we will continue to love our sin and, and, and turn our backs on God. And apart from God and his mercy and kindness being poured out on us, we will continue trying to be independent and continue trying to live as if there is no judge, doing with our lives whatever we want to do with our lives. That's why Ephesians 2 gives us the image that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Because on our own, we cannot revive ourselves. God has to give his mercy to us. But when God gives his mercy to us and we do believe, look at what happens. Look at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, this can be a strange verse to us. He receives and sets his seal. What in the world is this thing talking about here? First of all, he who receives this testimony, receives the tense here in the Greek conveys a decisive act. This is not just kind of you passively come into the kingdom of God. You're decisively deciding to become a follower of Jesus. It's a moment of faith for you when you receive, when you believe, when you accept, when you trust this message from Jesus of who he is. And a person who does that, who receives this testimony, who has this radical rebirth from above, notice what it says of this person. He or she sets his seal to this, that God is true. What does it mean to set your seal? Well, in the days the Bible was written, there was much illiteracy. And so people would seal things with a seal, and that would show ownership for one, but the seal would also show authenticity. It would show a guarantee of something. And when a person brings this note or this letter, when it has a seal on it, you know it is authentic. You know it is from the owner. And so this idea of setting a seal can, conveys the idea of the owner's guarantee of authenticity. And so don't miss this, friends, that whenever we receive the testimony of God, we set our seal. There is a, when we're trusting in Christ and we're changed by it, when we experience this rebirth, it becomes an authentication to others around us that God is true. And when we believe Jesus and it changes us, it becomes a witness to others around us. We set our seal that we believe God enough to bank everything on our life on this Jesus. That we believe enough to realize that God's words are true, that we are going to follow this Jesus who claims to be God and claims to be the only way to have eternal life. The, only, the one who looks at us and says, you're a sinful wreck, but I will change you for my glory. We say he's true in that. When we receive this radical rebirth from above, when we receive his testimony, we set our seal not only in our own hearts, but to those watching around us, that we believe that God is true. Friends, following Jesus is not praying a prayer, shaking a pastor's hand so you don't go to hell. Following Christ is about a receiving from him a radical rebirth that transforms us, that sets our seal so others around can see this person follows Jesus. Which goes back to our initial question, what does my life reveal about who I believe Jesus is? Can people watching around me realize I've set my seal to this, that I am all in for God? Or not. But it continues, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The person who believes in Jesus receives his message, receives his radical transformation from above. What do they have? They have eternal life. How this brings back images of John 3:16 from two weeks ago. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have have eternal life. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at that passage, we often think of eternal life only in terms of the future. Well, I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to go to heaven. That's eternal life. But notice it doesn't say he will one day have eternal life. He has right now eternal life. This is present tense. That the one who receives this testimony from Jesus has right now in this very moment eternal life. It is the present experience of a believer now. And tie that into sets his seal. Friends, if we are in Christ, if we've received a radical transformation from above, 
and we have begun to experience eternal life, not just a hope for the future, but right now? Don't you think that would show to those around us? Let me think about it when we've taken our kids to Disney World in the past. When I told my kids, hey, do you want to go to Disney World? I didn't have to be like, do you really want to go? Like, I'm not sure. What, what's really going on in your heart? Do you really like Disney World or not? I didn't, they set their seal to it. Disney, yay! I mean, they were going crazy. I mean, there, there was no doubt that they wanted, to, they wanted to go there. And when we're walking around the Magic Kingdom, I didn't have to be like, guys, are y'all having fun? I can't tell. You know, you look kind of sad today. Are you, are you, did you really enjoy it? It's a small world. I'm not having to ask their questions on that because they've set their seal to it. When they're in the middle of the Magic Kingdom, their eyes are big. They're glowing. They're running around like they're in heaven almost. I mean, they, they are so excited to be in the Magic Kingdom. They're setting their seal. They're authenticating. Their outward actions are showing what's in their heart that they are on cloud nine for a little preschooler to be in the Magic Kingdom. Friends, how much more so if we have eternal life now today... Should it set our seal? Should it show to all around us that we are in Christ? That God is true and that we've banked our life on it. We believe it has changed us and others can see that evidence of that as well. Are we experiencing it now? Friends, we prayed at our intercessory prayer time for Carmen and Elaine. When I think about someone who set their seal on saying God is true, I think of Carmen and Elaine in our church. When Carmen is at the cancer center, while his wife is at the hospital with heart problems, and their faith is unwavering, and their joy in Christ is still strong, they are setting their seal for all around that they believe God is true, that God is faithful. In the midst of the sufferings of this life, the joy they have in these trials is setting their seal for all to see that they're confessing that God is true. Like we saw with John the Baptist, their attitudes, their actions, their words are all a confession to others that God is true in their lives and is changing them. I think of friends in this church who've had difficulties with their kids, medical issues and different trials and challenges, and yet their hope is in Christ and their joy is in Christ. Even as they're walking those difficult journeys and doctors and nurses and friends are watching, they're setting their seal to say, God is my hope, God is true in all this. I think many of you who've gone through different trials where life doesn't work out the way you hope and there's things you desire in life that's not happening and you go through what James 1 says, trials of many kinds, and yet your joy is steadfast, your hope in the Lord is steadfast, your patience is steadfast. That is you setting your seal that you have eternal life now, that what God is saying is true. And friends, if we will experience eternal life now, it will show to others. We are setting our seal for others to see. I think of what it says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. And catch this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Friends, do we have people asking us why we have hope in the midst of trials? Do we have people noticing? Have we set our seal that we believe God is true in such a way that people around us are taking notice? But I'd be amiss if we stop there because verse 36 continues with a sobering warning that a lot of churches want to avoid. But look back at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because we live in a culture that wants to do everything we can to avoid talking about the wrath of God. Church after church is abandoning this doctrine and only wants to talk about God as love. But friends, if we do not talk about the wrath of God, we have no gospel. 
Because we have nothing to be delivered from if we do not understand it. This is part of God's nature. We're a culture that's obsessed with God's love, but we forget that God is also a God of justice and a God of jealousy and a God of wrath. And on Wednesday night, starting in May, we're going to do a series on the attributes, the characteristics of, uh, characteristics of God. And yes, we're going to look at God's love and mercy and kindness, but we're also going to spend some weeks looking at God's wrath and his jealousy and his justice and these attributes that we often tend to overlook. What is God's wrath? Quick summary now. We'll go deeper in that this summer. But God's wrath is his active opposition to anything evil. Notice it's not, it's, it's not just passive. It's his active opposition to anything that is evil. For in sin must be dealt with. God is holy. God is perfect. And in his perfection, his holiness, God cannot tolerate sin. He pours out his wrath against sin. And either we have to bear the wrath or there has to be a perfect substitute, Jesus, who bears it for us. There's no, to use our, our, our southern idiom again, there's no sweeping it under the rug with God. For God to be like, oh, I like that person, I'm just going to ignore that or forget it because I'm love, that would minimize his holiness and he ceased to be God. God's holiness requires his wrath to deal with sin. And either Jesus deals with it on our behalf or we deal with it directly ourselves. And like eternal life, I think we often only think of it as something in the future, a future judgment. I'll just live like I want to now. I'll deal with God when I get to that point. That's not the case. Look at verse 36, that last part again. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. Just like eternal life is a present reality for believers now, the wrath of God is a present reality for those outside of Christ right now, though they may not even understand it the wrath of god begins now it is a future judgment but it's the state that all those outside of christ are already under friends we're born this way we're born with a sin nature i don't have to teach my kids how to be sinners i'm not worried about my kids being like man my kids are just so good and holy man they're they're gonna get beat up in school i better teach them how to lie a little bit no Kids come out being selfish. Kids come out being sinners. We're born with a sin nature. Therefore, from the beginning, God's wrath is on us. We are sinners in need of rescue in this. Because as it says here, whoever does not obey the Son, friends, we have all disobeyed the Son. Every single one of us. Romans 3.23 is so clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what do we do with all this teaching? As John gives us these six verses of review here of who Jesus is, of him being God and having authority, what he came to do to bear witness to us of what it means to follow him, and then this call to response. I want to go back to that question I asked you at the beginning. What does your life reveal about who you really believe Jesus is? What does your life reveal? If I ask your spouse, your friends in school, if I ask your neighbors, if I ask the people who checked you out in the Walmart line yesterday, if we ask the people around you, the car that cuts you off on Eastern Boulevard... What does your life reveal about who you really believe? Because, friends, it's easy for us to come in on Sunday morning and say, I believe in Jesus. But do our lives, from when we leave here today until we come back next Sunday, what do our lives show we really believe? Because what we believe is not what we say necessarily. It's, it's going to be based on our actions because belief is knowledge that leads to action. What do your attitude, your actions, your words show this week? Because, friends, the gospel creates a division. There's no neutrality, no straddling the fence. The gospel demands a response. Either... We have faith and belief in this Jesus who is God, who John has been laying out for us for three chapters. He is God. We have faith and belief that Jesus is God. He came to rescue us from sin, to give us grace. And when we believe that, we receive that, we set our seal to that, saying, I know it's true, and others around me are going to see the difference as well because I've been reborn from above. Or we disbelieve, and we continue in our already state of sin. We continue in our state of disobedience. We continue in our rejection of God. And when we do that, friends, if... 
Believing and receiving is setting our seal to God is true. To reject and not believe is setting our seal that God is a liar. Because we don't believe him enough to follow him in that. We're saying he's a liar. And so, friends, the Gospel of John demands a response. What does your life reveal about what you really believe, who you really believe Jesus is? You know, I'm getting to know a lot of you. It's been a fun several months getting to know you, but I don't know every one of you. And perhaps in this room, there's someone who's never trusted Christ. You may come to church every week. There's people who fill the, the pews of churches and the seats of churches week after week who've never trusted Christ. And over nine weeks, you've been confronted with this Jesus. And the question for you is, what will you do with him? Because there's no second chances in eternity. Every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God one day, and excuses will dry up at that point. I was too busy for you, God. It's not going to really work at that point. That's going to just evaporate. Or, God, I want to live my own way. I, you know, I really didn't believe you were true, so I wanted to live for myself. Or, Lord, I wanted to have too much fun the way the world wanted to have fun. I didn't want to follow you. Whatever excuse we're going to have is going to really drop and be minuscule at that point and be evaporate in the presence of the holiness of God. And so if that's you, I plead with you before it's too late, look to this Jesus who gives eternal life, who gives you being born again and a radical transformation from above. But for a lot of you, as I'm getting to know you and hear your stories and see your faith, this text demands a question for us. What does your life reveal about who you really believe Jesus is? Is there in your life, because of the gospel, genuine change? Would the people around you know that you've set your seal that God is true by the way you talk about your wife when you're at work away from her? Would the way you interact with your kids be an example to others around that you set your seal that God is true and therefore you're not going to exasperate your children? Is the way that you talk to your friends and talk in holiness and treat one another with kindness setting a seal to those around you that you believe God is true because it has changed you on that? Like I mentioned earlier, when the person cuts you off on Eastern Boulevard, is the way you treat that person, does it set your seal that you believe God is true and you're going to show kindness even to people who don't show kindness to you? Is the way you treat the least of those around you, is it setting a seal? Basically, what is your... What is your life showing from the way you pray to the way you love others? What would the neighbors, the strangers, the people in your classroom, in your school, your job, your workplace say about you? Would they say, this person believes God is true and it's changed them, that people can see the difference? Now, friends, if there's areas that are clouding that, what does this text demand of us? It demands us to go back to the gospel. Because the Bible is very clear that we all have sin in our life. And all these areas we're mentioning, there's areas that we're all going to fall short. Because we're of this earth. We're finite. We're limited. We've inherited a sin nature that thankfully Jesus has defeated, but we still fight against it, don't we? And so the question for you this morning, are there areas of your life, if you're a follower of Christ, do you know for sure that you're following this Jesus that the Gospel of John is so masterfully laying out for us? The question for you is, how are you doing being an example of that to others? How are you doing setting your seal, confessing that God is true by not your words, but just your entire life and the way you live? And if there's areas where it's being clouded because of the way you treat your family, the way you treat your friends because of dishonesty, because of some impurity in your life, whatever it might be, the gospel calls you back to repentance today because the gospel is about being transformed. I think so often in the church we see the gospel as the tool to get a lost person saved so they don't go to hell. But the gospel is not just that. The gospel is about people falling in love with Jesus and the gospel is about changing me day by day, changing you day by day. The gospel is for everyday living, not just for... I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to go to heaven. The gospel's what changed. So friends, if there's an area that's clouding your life and keeping you from setting your seal to all those around you to confess that God is true and he's changing you, my challenge to you this morning is do business with God on that. The gospel that saves you is the same gospel that will transform you. How does God transform you? He gives you the word, the gospel. He gives you the power of prayer. 
gives you the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. And friends, don't miss it. It gives you community. And so if there's something that is, we're talking this morning to where you're realizing that, you know, people around me wouldn't even know that I'm different. I, they wouldn't even see this radical transformation from above. They wouldn't see that I've set my seal that God is true. There's somebody that's keeping you from that. You need to, as a follower of Christ, number one, talk to God and confess that to him. Number two, you need to get in the word and let the word change you. But number three, you need to get in community. You need to find someone else, find one of our elders, find me, find someone, one of your Sunday school teachers, and say, I am not setting my seal to those around me that God is true. Would you pray for me? Would you hold me accountable? Would you help me? And for those of you who are in Christ, you know it, and you can really think of, man, in God's grace, I really think I'm doing a good job of, of setting my seal, showing to others that God is true. Well, that's God's grace. That's, that's not you. And that lead that during this time to, to respond to God with thankfulness and to ask him, as we saw back in John 1, for grace upon grace upon grace. Because, friends, we have a very real enemy who wants to destroy us. And just because you may be doing a good job right now setting your seal to those around you that God is true, the enemy's looking for your Achilles heel, so to speak, to bring you down. And so use this as a call to ask for grace upon grace to seek the Lord. Because by God's grace, his plan for us is for us to have to experience eternal life right now not just in the church service, but when we're at home with our kids, when we're in your job and your workplace tomorrow, when you're in the classroom tomorrow, when you're driving down Eastern Boulevard, that we're to be experiencing eternal life every moment of every day. And let it be your prayer, asking God for grace to experience that, to experience eternal life now, and to show to others that you believe that God is true. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the Gospel of John. I thank you that you have shown us in the Gospel of John over and over that Jesus is God. You've shown us over and over that you've come to rescue us because we are sinners in need of a Savior. And Father, I pray right now as we even we think about what our lives show about what we really believe. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in people's hearts. I can't see their hearts. Only you can see others' hearts. And so God, I ask right now that, Lord, if there are anyone in this room who has never trusted Christ for the first time, who's never been born again from above, who's never experienced the, the experience of eternal life, even now, Holy Spirit, would you show them that before it's too late? If there's anyone here who's putting their confidence in praying a prayer, walking an aisle, getting baptized, joining a church, serving the Lord in the church, and their confidence in that instead of in the gospel, the good news that Jesus has rescued them, would you show them that before it's too late? Father, for those who are here who are in Christ, who are by your grace really doing a good job of setting their seal that, that you are true and you are real and they believe you and they're making a difference, Lord, I pray you give them grace to sustain them. It's your grace that's already sustained them. I pray that they would carry on with thankfulness and with joy. And Lord, I pray you give them even a more abundant opportunities this week, Lord, to make known to others the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray that even this week people will come up to them and say, why do you have hope in this situation? How are you able to be so steadfast? What's different about you, friend? And I pray you would give them boldness to be able to answer. Lord, for my brothers and sisters here who have some sin stronghold that's clouding their ability to show to others that you are true and that their, their lives are different, God, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, convict them? Would you show them eternal life is so much more than they're experiencing right now? Would you show them the, the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, and the power of community to bring change to their life? that they might have abundant life. They may have life to the full the way you designed it to be. And Lord, I pray this week as we go throughout this week, you might for all of us in the Gateway family, give us grace that we might experience eternal life and joy in you every moment of every day, wherever we are at. And as you do this, Lord, not for us, not for our namesake, not so we can be talked about, but God, so that you can be talked about. Because God, we want others to know that you are true. And we want others to know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we just commit it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing in Christ alone?